Hello, everyone, and welcome to Changing Reels, a podcast that is proud to be part of the Modern Superior Network. For Changing Reels, I am Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And for those of us joining us for the first time, Changing Reels is a podcast dedicated to kind of the lesser-seen films or perhaps lesser appreciated movies, focusing specifically on diversity both in front of and behind the camera. Today, we're going to be looking at a handful of shorts. Both Courtney and myself like to select them and talk a bit before we get started on our feature film, which is Sofia Coppola's The Bling Ring. Courtney, I'm interested on what you think about our shorts in relation to the bling ring, because we seem to have a bit of synergy. I'll, of course, explain that as we go along, but why don't you tell us a bit about your short? My short is from 2013, and it's called Clapping for the Wrong Reasons, and it was directed by Hiro Murai. Hopefully I pronounced his name correctly. And he's a director who people would more so know for directing a whole bunch of episodes of the show Atlanta, which stars Donald Glover. And he also works with Donald Glover, making a lot of his rap videos, because Donald Glover, aside from starring in Atlanta and now going to be Lando Calrissian in the new Star Wars film, he's also the rapper known as Childish Gambino. This particular short, I believe, was released just before the Childish Gambino album called Breaking the Internet was dropped in 2013. And because we were talking about the bling ring, my mind went back to this particular short, which has a very interesting take on celebrity culture. I like to call it the anti-bling ring, if you will, because it's basically the day in the life of a fictionalized version of Donald Glover as he goes about his day recording, interacting with family members, and encountering a mysterious person. That's a generalized synopsis. It's somewhat experimental, but it's a very interesting short. It seemed like Donald Glover was playing Childish Gambino here and instead of a fictionalized version of himself or anything like that. And since rap is built around the idea of creating a persona a lot of the times, it kind of gave me the impression that Childish Gambino is not a very happy person despite the environment. One of the things that I found interesting about what you said was this being kind of anti the bling ring in terms of how the characters in both the bling ring and clapping for the wrong reasons. That's true because clapping for the wrong reasons seems to be a lot of people who aren't exactly happy with this environment where they can kind of technically do whatever they want and get up whenever they want and everything. Whereas the bling ring, it's a different kind of sincerity. It's people who just absolutely love this seemingly superficial lifestyle and they embrace that to a degree. With clapping for the wrong reasons, though, it has that detachment, that way it floats from one vignette to the next, really engaging in some good humor along the way. I really liked the appearance by Danielle Fischel, who was Corey's love interest. Oh, I don't even remember if Corey's the name or not. But no, the, it's Corey. It is Corey, okay. So, Corey and Topanga. Yep, yep, Topanga on Boy Meets World. And it was kind of interesting how she was employed and, and women in general were deployed throughout Clapping for the Wrong Reasons that actually made me think of a Sofia Coppola movie. Because a lot of the women are hidden or they're kind of speaking into nothing like that moment when Glover goes up into one of the many rec rooms that are throughout the mansion and there are three men trying to convince this one woman that yes they have seen more vaginas than she has which is a really 
odd thing to boast about to another woman, you know, regardless of whether she's gay or straight or anything like that, but it set the tone for women speaking off into these vapid men, and Danielle Fischel's part, same thing to begin with. She was completely concealed by the tree, talking at him. There was a nice little shift in focus, because Glover as Gambino or whoever was taking her seriously and engaging this back and forth and i really like how hero's camera then paid attention to fischl so that they could have this conversation together so it worked out really well there were a couple of images i was grasping at even though i liked them but but that was my impression i i really dug this one thing I liked about the official conversation and the previous one that you talked about where they're trying to one-up each other in terms of who's seen the most vaginas is it really speaks to the vapid side of celebrity, if you will. Official's telling Glover about a particular dream that she had, and in it, it's like her wedding day. Everyone is all decked out, but they're eating food off of, I think it was paper plates. For her, she's in cargo pants. She's not ready. And then as dreams do, they kind of jump out of sequence and next thing you know she's smoking and realizes that she's three months pregnant and her mother comes in and tells her just worry about getting dressed the fact that she's smoking and endangering a potential child is not as important as looking the part and appearing and with and if you contrast that with the conversation about who's seen more naked women it also goes to that whole rap persona where a lot of rap is boasting about how many girls you've been with how many girls you can conquer right so it's a very interesting superficial aspect and i like how you pointed out that glover really starts to engage her in that conversation almost trying to bring some truth and reality into it but he ends off with that perfect thing about because i guess through that whole conversation they're picking lemons from a garden and he's like have way too many lemons almost as if life just gives you way too many opportunities you don't know what to do with it (laughs) and you know you have all these opportunities but what are we talking about we're talking about looking the part and scoring the girls. And I, I think that's one thing I really liked about this film is that throughout the film, as you pointed out, the character with the Chanis Gambino is somewhat melancholy. You know, like life, although they've got all this excess, is not really good. Like at the end of the day, he realizes that it's very fleeting. He still has to wake up and have the collection agency call to remind him that this might all end. The, the elusive woman that he seems to be chasing after, he doesn't really know. No one really seems to know. So it's like you're going after a particular ideal, but it's not what makes you happy because at the end of the day, you're still alone by yourself. And I think that whole thing with Gambino and the mysterious girl is an interesting counterpoint to the rappers because you use the word chasing. I wouldn't say chasing, but not haunting either. The woman just seems to be something nagging at the back of his mind that, yeah, this may be temporary, but she's who gets him up in the morning, her presence or whatever it is that she's trying to get him. It's almost like a muse because it leads him from room to room barely seen until at the very end when he does see her briefly and he has no idea who she is this is potentially fleeting and won't go but it also gives him literally an excuse to get out of bed and go from room to room and make those nearly industrial awesome discordant beats which was one of my favorite moments the other thing which i think this does share with the bling ring is the lifestyle's are seemingly vapid. I don't think that the existences that we see here in Clapping for the Wrong Reasons or in the Bling Ring are 
vapid exactly. One of the cool things about clapping for the wrong reasons is that it does, along with the bling ring, ask us to take this reality on its own terms. That's why I liked the recurring image of almost a repressed spirituality. You had the big Hindu statue in the middle of the gigantic living room that Gambino prays at, but I also really like that brief surreal moment where Glover is standing at the sink and he's pulling this string out of his nose. After a lot of pulling and spitting, it's got what looks like a diseased tooth at the end of it. Yeah, like a gold tooth. Yeah, and the way those images worked out with that, you know, you're always pushing and you may never fully excise because the image of him pulling the string out is a cleansing exercise. I think it's a Buddhist cleansing exercise usually done with a piece of cloth. And now that I think about it, (laughs) I don't know if that was Hindu or not. I think that may have been but it didn't look like the Buddha. Anyway, it's some religion that's not Christian, so I'm not as familiar with it as I wish I could be. But there's this nice twist at the end with that desiccated tooth. As we saw with the Babadook, a desiccated tooth is soul rot. It's pain that gets to your very core. He wouldn't have found that if it weren't for this girl that he's almost wandering after in a haze. It's like a daily cleansing to get this bit of rot out so that he can move on to the next day. I'm not, I guess a hundred percent sold on how it fit in with everything else it was still maybe the most interesting moment in the short for me it's a very jarring moment because it almost comes out of nowhere and then it's packed with so much symbolism in that one moment compared to the rest of the film which there's a lot of symbolism but it gradually builds so first I was a little taken back by it just in terms of like yeah, heck, even the gory nature of it but then when you think of it in context of the whole film and some of the themes that he's talking about you know it, it does fit so my question now is if we're able to transition to your short I would like to know how does your short tie into the bling ring all three of our shorts start off with a fade in to figures clothed in darkness with a lot of diegetic noise with clapping for the wrong reasons. It was lackadaisical summer sounds and then the knocking and and finally, you know, we see Glover wake up. With the opening shot of the bling ring, it was one of the robberies that takes place with the bling ring. But again, the sounds of the environment seeping in as we get these bleary images. And what really interested me with the giant, especially in those opening moments, was the palpable anxiety of realizing that life is teeming all around you. Everything is active. You just hear the crickets and the insects, the wind and everything combining in this cacophony as the protagonist, who's a a woman by the name of Charlotte, is trying to deal and process all these thoughts. So... I just, it was really interesting to me how they all hit this kind of primal chord, and I really liked it for that. And uh, Courtney, did you just, uh, I think I might have accidentally started it up again. I did accidentally start it up again. I didn't even hear it on this end. I'm just going to roll with it, because I was starting to feel kind of intense talking about it. (laughs) So, uh, Courtney, that's how the three tie together. Obviously, we're dealing with way different subject matter, but what did you think? I found it very haunting and oddly disturbing, even though I would argue that there's nothing graphic that happens in it. Donald Glover pulling a tooth out of his nose is, to me, far more visually disturbing than anything that actually happened here. But it's got a very eerie tone to it. And it was one I had to think about. I'm still not quite sure 
where I fall on it because I feel like there's a lot of information I'm missing from this film. There's a lot of cryptic dialogue that happens throughout, but yet I'm still intrigued, if that makes any sense. No, it totally does. This is a horror tone poem being more about the sounds and the emotions with the bling ring and clapping for the wrong reasons. Those are poems in their own right, but they almost seem a little more structured, especially in terms of how they employ the images. So I think you're on to something there. And the one thing I wasn't quite sure of, and maybe it's just left to interpretation, but there's a lot of reference to the giant going around committing these heinous murders. We know that Charlotte is grieving over, I believe it's the loss of her mother. But one thing that wasn't clear is, was she the embodiment of the giant? And did she, in effect, cause her mother's death? Or was it just her mother's death in conjunction with these other killings? The central question in the film that everyone has for it is, where has she been? She's going to this party and all these people haven't seen her in three months. And her only answer is, well, I've been at home. And they're like, you've been at home for three months? And you do have that encounter with the gentleman at the restaurant who reveals a piece of information, but the information he reveals threw my head for a loop even further. So it's, it's one that I was like, I, I'm going to have to rewatch this short again after we discuss this. And I'm kind of curious, I guess, how the, the two of us go through movies, because it seemed like you were kind of trying to piece it together literally. What was her specific relation to the murder victim? What happened after she found her mother? Who found who? From my perspective, it's important for me to point out that I did a lot of my formative growing, my formative years in the American South, where this takes place. South Carolina and Georgia and the northern part of Florida, which is definitely part of the South, versus the southern part of Florida, which is its own thing. But I spent a lot of time in the South, got a proud Georgia dad and all that. For me, the giant was less about you know, piecing together Charlotte's specific relation to everything and more Charlotte's dread as she is going on the first stage of her adult life. She's going off to college, realizing all this death and violence around her. That's why I react really strongly to those cacophonies, like I mentioned, those noises of all the life in the background, and how little sense it makes if you try and piece it together literally. Everything is killing everything all the time. Things are dying outside my window right now. And we try not to think about that. But for a Southern lifestyle, it can be kind of hermetic and sealed in. And that's why I liked the countering images of the Gothic pillars of the homes. They're brightly lit and white as she drives by them in her car versus getting into the city itself and then seeing just this blood red lighting sprayed over everything so for me it was more an anxiety piece i don't think at the end that it is a giant if there even is one that is coming to get her it's just this lurching realization she is probably i mean who am i saying she is probably she's going to die it may be violent all these people at the party that she thought were her friends, they're going to die. They don't understand that because they've still been sealed in their party environment. Whereas her experience with her mother and then finding the corpse has shaken her. She's aware of this mortality and she's trying to piece it together. And when you're trying to piece something together and you're drowned out by the noise of life, it can drive you crazy. And it's interesting because when you're talking about the blood red in terms of the trees and the buildings and stuff, I got a very 
Um, I could be way off, but I got a very David Lynch vibe watching this film. And maybe it's just my brain trying to piece some of the parts together literally. But there were certain moments, like when the guy gets out of the car with her and they're at a field or whatever and they stop, the way how the camera is centered on the car door so that you get the reflection of him coming out, almost like a parallel world. Because some of her interactions with some of the people, like the gentleman at the party that clearly wanted to date her, and had left her a couple of messages, but she never called back. His stunted reaction to her and then his warning to her before she leaves, be careful because you're just his type, whoever he may be. There was a lot of moments and with her almost going catatonic at one point and seeing the red. I don't know. I just got a very David Lynch kind of vibe. So that's why at first I was like, well, maybe it's just a literal story and there's a killer or maybe she's a killer or maybe there's not a killer. And then halfway through, I was like, this feels very David Lynch. But the type of lost highway David Lynch where I'm not quite sure I'm getting what's going on here. <laughs> That's a really good thing to bring up. Kyle, who recommended this short to me, he did his undergraduate senior thesis project on Mulholland Drive, and we were actually planning on doing a Lynch project for my old site, Can't Stop the Movies, before he got accepted into a PhD program. If it gives me stuff like this, cool. I mean, I was already happy for him, but this is even better. But I think that the Lynchian vibe, that was actually one of the things that we were going to try and define. What is it that makes something Lynchian? There are stylistic elements like the semi-fractured narrative, evil almost appearing suddenly in front of the camera, sound design is key to all of Lynch's movies, and it's obviously key here, as I've mentioned the cacophony of noise so many times. But I think the most important piece, and why you may have associated Lynchian-wise, is the subtle and then sometimes overt pressure on women to be or act a certain way. Because you mentioned how the, the guy at the party, he comes close to raping her at the end. At the very least, he has assaulted her. She gave no indication she wanted to be touched, and he started trying to undress her. And there was another guy at the party. As she was leaving, he was grilling her, wondering, why aren't you with us anymore? He's the one who tells her before she leaves, be careful out there, your dress is tight. That's slut-shaming. That's saying that your clothing is asking for you to be assaulted. And that's also how I took the... So, sorry, because yeah, if it's tight, then yeah, I, I, I can see that that thought process that you were going through. Like literally tight, not like mm -hmm. tight, it's awesome, but more like tight, it's literally tight. No, I was thinking more like tight, like T-Y-P-E. Like, ah, is his type. Yeah, because again, it made reference back to the giant and the killings and what happened, right? So... And actually, that works either way, because it's still saying that you're a more attractive target for another man because of how you're dressed. Either it's another man's type and this man is violent, or your dress is tight, like literally it's too tight around you, because it still puts the onus on the woman for dressing a certain way. Either the killer's type, or it's literally too tight and asking for it. Which is also why that scene in the diner with the older man fits in with that kind of menacing pressure, because he keeps pushing her. He's like, I know you, I've seen you, you've been on the news, and she tries her damnedest to politely deflect him. That scene in particular really hit me, being from the South, and kind of 
of this theatrical form of politeness you have to put on versus the Midwest or everything's really passive aggressive. And she's nicely trying to rebuff him, but he keeps pushing and pushing. The line of dialogue that I had to think about was when he finally realizes who she is and he says, you're that girl. There was Charlotte who was stabbed to death. You're that girl. Given everything else that happened and the pressure on Charlotte, I wasn't thinking of that as you are the dead girl, you are back or anything like that. But fitting into her anxiety of thinking of herself as dead or about to die, he's almost got a headache trying to piece this stuff together. He keeps grasping his temples and the thoughts are separate. He remembers the murder. He remembers that there was a girl who looked like her associated with the murder. So it's like no matter what she does, she can't get away from this anxiety. And the guy that wanted to date her, it gets even worse from there until she's out in a field alone screaming. Doesn't really matter if there is a killer or a serial killer or not. No answer that she gets at this point is going to cure her of her anxiety. It's that's just there. I definitely have to rewatch this short because there's just there's so much to unpack in it. Awesome. That's maybe the best reaction I could hope for. The worst kind of movies to review were, eh, they're okay. I mean, I didn't hate myself watching it, but it was those ones that got lodged in my brain. It haunts you in a way, be it good or bad. And I think the giant is haunting in the best way. Talking with you has settled it. I love this. I love, <laughs> I do love it. And I'm really happy that Kyle recommended it to me. Oh, it, it definitely builds wonderful atmosphere. It's just even discussing with you, I had two possible threads of where this film could be going. And then you just added like three more threads <laughs> to it. So there's definitely a lot, lot going on. So, you know, hey, kudos to the director for making my brain work overtime on this one. Yeah, David or boy, this was excellent. With that, our two shorts segueing in a very different direction, at least compared to The Giant. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to be talking about Sofia Coppola's 2013 The Bling Ring. We are moving on to our feature film of the week, 2013's The Bling Ring, which is written and directed by Sofia Coppola, stars Katie Chang, Israel Broussard, and Emily Watson. The cinematography was by the late Harris Savadez, who unfortunately died, I believe, when it was in post-production. And it's basically about a click of high school age, probably seniors, who decide based on their current likes of high fashion and jewelry, that would be the bling of the title, that they are going to rob celebrities. They rob Paris Hilton, they rob uh, Lindsay Lohan, they end up hitting up one of Orlando Bloom's joints. This is actually the second time it has been committed to film. It was also committed to a Lifetime movie. I was admittedly toying around with the idea of watching the Lifetime and then coming into this discussion saying, man, this is way different than I remember. But I decided to stick with the Sofia Coppola, which I'm going to assume <laughs> is to your benefit, Courtney. Well, we'll see in our discussion. Very good. But this was your choice. And from our discussion before in one of those behind the scenes pre-podcast things, you said that you hadn't seen this and that you weren't exactly hot on Sophia's recent career. So correct me if I'm wrong. And either way, wrong or not, 
why did you want to go ahead and hook up with the bling ring? Well, this was one that I remember it came out and there was a bit of buzz around it and then almost like radio silence afterwards. And this year I've been catching up on the Coppola films that I've missed. I, I saw her first three films and then after Marie Antoinette took a mini break off of Sofia Coppola. This year, I decided to take part in the 52 Films by Women project. And for those who don't know, it's, it's I believe it's an LA-based project, but you can sign up online. Really, you can start at any time. And the goal is to watch 52 films that are directed by women. So pretty much like a film a week directed by women, promoting inclusiveness in cinema, and just celebrating female filmmakers. And part of the goal of our show in terms of diversity and inclusion, and we had discussed this early on, was to ensure that we incorporate a substantial number of female directors in our show. And we had talked about Casey Lemon's film, The Caveman's Valentine, and she was more of the example of one of the outliers where you make a film and then you have to really struggle hard to make another. If we were to talk about, for this generation, female filmmakers who are really loved and have made a big impact in cinema, I would argue that Sofia Coppola is probably one of the top four right now um, in terms of clout and power you have her you have Catherine Bigelow Ava DuVernay and I would still say Jane Campion is still up there for no I totally would too Top of the Lake was fantastic yeah it it was fantastic I don't think enough people saw that but yeah those would be the top four if I had to choose off the top of my head so this year I caught up with Somewhere that was the very first film that I watched as part of the 52 films directed by women project I have to admit I did not like that one and I realized outside of Lost in Translation, which I absolutely adore, and I like The Virgin Suicides, but it's not a film that I've had any need to go back to. Marie Antoinette and Somewhere left me feeling kind of cold. And I know we have Marie Antoinette on our list of films to discuss. And I figured before we jump to Marie Antoinette, let me catch up with The Bling Ring. And I guess also have to see a very Murray Christmas, just so I get the well-rounded experience. And watching The Bling Ring reminded me of some of the issues that I had with Somewhere, in the sense that The Bling starts off with so much promise it's got great style visually she is a wonderful filmmaker but I found myself wanting a little more from it by the time this film ended the most interesting and substantial stuff from the bling ring happens in the last 20 minutes so hmm. that's my initial take on it but what did you think of this film well I liked it when I first reviewed it over at can't stop the movies and I decided to take a quick look back at my review when uh, we were starting this podcast so that I could see what 2013 Andrew thought of it. And I don't agree with 2013 Andrew. 2013 Andrew still gave it a like rating and talked positively about it, but he condemned or criticized, I guess would be more accurate, the vapid subject matter. Looking at it now, it's not vapid. It's almost like a self-reflection slash self-criticism from Coppola. She grew up in a well-to-do situation because of Francis Ford Coppola. She fairly and not so fairly has endured charges of nepotism throughout her life, uh, most notably with Francis Ford Coppola's decision to cast her in The Godfather Part 3. I may be one of the few people alive who is okay with defending The Godfather Part 3 and her role, but... That's maybe another subject for another time. Um, But the bling ring, looking back on it now, it suffered a lot from being released so close to Spring Breakers. And I don't want to revive that 
too much because between Spring Breakers and the Bling Ring, they have superficial similarities in terms of the creative minds behind them are extremely different outlooks, even if some of the subject matter, again, is superficially similar. But one of the things that I caught at the very beginning of the Bling Ring the second time around the opening crawl of the camera when it's going through a lot of the jewelry and clothing and everything like that. And then when we got to the credits for Sophia, a necklace that says rich bitch is centered directly in between written and directed by right up front. She's saying that this is written and directed by rich bitch, Sophia Coppola. That's one of the reasons that the bling ring feels like a self-reflection a lot more than her other movies. That bit of self-effacement at the very beginning tempered the way I looked at the rest of it. The ring themselves, their most honest when they're going out to clubs, when they're robbing pretty much everything not related to the media that surrounds them afterwards. It seemed like an almost satirical take on therapy scenes, too, because Mark, who is the central male protagonist played by Israel Broussard, when he's talking to the therapist, it's these bland platitudes. I didn't feel like I was an A-list looker. I know I'm not ugly anything like that. And there's a lot of humor to be mined from Emma Watson's performance as Nikki kind of along those lines. But when I settled into it and I was taking just that quick shot at the beginning, it all struck me more as her being analytic about the kind of environment that she grew up with. Tell the stories about what you know, and you should also stretch yourself otherwise. But throughout the bling ring, I was thinking more about the crimes and their consequences than I was about the vapidness I initially criticized it for. If we're going to look at the bling ring on exactly its own terms, these are people that grew up in environments where there is essentially nothing but victimless crime. She doesn't glamorize it, their lifestyle. She just presents it so plainly. And that's a far cry from Spring Breakers when you had the partiers and everything to the rough dubstep flicking off the camera. Here, it's just a fact of life. This is how it is, and then it's up for us to interpret that. It's funny when you, you talk about this film being a self-criticism, and I don't necessarily agree with that. I agree with you, the rich bitch chain is a very cheeky placement, especially around her name, but even in presenting their life the way it is, if I was a teenager watching this film, I would get swept up in the glamour of it all. Because as much as she's showing them doing horrible things, when they're out partying, it's almost euphoric how it's being filmed. The slow motion movements, the bottle service coming with the sparkles on the top, Emma Watson doing the little lip thing. Like, there's a certain allure to it. And for a lot of the film, especially when <laughs> they are doing yeah. the robberies, Every house you go into, it's almost like, oh my gosh, look at this. Can you believe this person has a walk-in shoe closet? And then she's got a hidden jewelry closet. They've got so much stuff. All these celebrities. And with Coppola, I've noticed, I guess from Lost in Translation, although I think that's the best in terms of how she's handled it, she has always gone back to the well of celebrity and why are we obsessed with people who are famous? And in this one, similar to Somewhere, I don't feel that she really offers any any real insight into it. It's just, man, these people are famous. They want to be famous. They commit these crimes. And when they get caught at the end of the day, they still become famous. 
One of the things that irked me about this film the most is how the characters are portrayed. Emma Watson's Nikki is essentially the real focal point, if you will, because it's her and Mark, I think, that are the two primary focuses. And that's partly because she sticks so close to the Vanity Fair article that this film was inspired by that that's who we get all the insight. But yet everyone refers to Rebecca, played wonderfully by Katie Chang, as the leader. She is the one we see throughout at the beginning. Everything about her and her motivations, we are told by everyone else. So Mark tells us why he thinks Rebecca is doing what she does. We never get it from her. We hear about Rebecca's parents through others, but yet we get to see, oh, Nikki has vapid parents and, you know, all these rich kids and their new age parenting. But as I'm watching the film, I'm going, well, wait, no, there's other parents that seem to be somewhat interested, but we never see them. They're like, they're strategically left out. And if you're going to do a reimagining of the events and changing the names, though you keep a lot of the facts the same, there's a lot of ground for you to delve and explore. And I feel like Rebecca gets short-changed in this film when she really to me was the most interesting character yeah we've got a lot of disagreements on this one because one of the things that i really picked up on this time around was nikki who emma watson played she's adamant that she was drawn into this and at least the way that the bling ring presents it and Apparently, how the case went, Rebecca, who is based on Rachel Lee, who is played by Katie Chang, and again, the performances in this are just superb, period. I'm not going to disagree with you at all there. But she is the one that starts it. It's just in our minds, because Emma Watson plays Nikki so extravagantly, it drifts our minds to thinking that she should be to blame. And that's also why I don't buy into the idea this is falsely glamorizing it or, or putting it up too much. Paris Hilton, who's one of the people who got robbed in real life, she has a cameo in this, and they use her actual closet in the movie. So it's kind of a case where if we're going to criticize it for glamorizing it too much, the person that was robbed is actually in it. They actually use her stuff. I think that there is a good criticism to be made for how the bling ring, at least in this movie, as presented, is not as diverse as the actual robbers themselves. I think that there's a really good criticism to make there. But for the lifestyle and then the surroundings themselves, what is being glamorized if that's what it is? One of the problems I had with the Wolf of Wall Street, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of drugs, people get they, what they want, and at the end, Jordan Belfort still gets what he wants, even though he was kind of caught for that. And it's weird for me to see that, where people say that the Wolf of Wall Street, or some critics say, I should say, where the Wolf of Wall Street is criticizing it by presenting it, the lights flickering, and how that makes it more negative in some way, uh, versus the bling ring, which that's what it is. There's no glamorization. <laughs> that's Paris Hilton's closet. That's Paris Hilton. Did Sofia Coppola have a responsibility to grime up the lens? As we're seeing it through the character's eyes, everything is, oh my gosh, and it's like, name check, name check, name check, because yes, that's what they're obsessed with, but it's how the film is done. The opening shots, for example, when you talk about the rich bitch chain, it starts off with the great line, let's go shopping. And then it's just image of jewelry, fashion, all this expensive stuff. Fine, that's just how it is. But every house that they go to, outside of 
the brilliant shot where she decides to film, I think it's Adrena Partridge's house, where they film it from a distance. And all you hear is the faint sirens. You hear Los Angeles, the faint sirens, the crickets, and you just see them moving in the house. The time where like, the film literally takes a moment to breathe. That was great, but every house it was like, this person has a nightclub. This person, it's like, okay, yes, we get that these people are rich, but as they're grabbing all this stuff, name-checking everything, and then you see them in the club partying afterwards, and as you said, there's no real consequence for their actions. At the end of the day, the real-life Nikki blew up in terms of becoming really popular, and the real-life person that Mark was based off, he blows up in terms of fame, TMZ, a bunch of Facebook likes. So what's the consequence? If you, you talk about Wolf of Wall Street as a perfect example to this, where, yes, he went to jail, but at the end of the day, he's still doing speaking tours. He had Scorsese and DiCaprio make a film about him, which is supposed to be, quote-unquote, like a moral lesson. But at the end of the day, if you're a certain age or of a certain mindset, you're going to look at it and think of it as glamorous, just the way how some people look at Goodfellas and think of the mobster life as glamorous, even though it's not. And why I was so annoyed about how Rebecca is portrayed is, out of all of them, Mark and Rebecca get four years, and the real-life individuals got four years. Rachel Lee, the one that Rebecca is based on, she served the most time in prison. But you hear nothing of her. All the news stories was about Nikki and how Nikki was doing the famous kind of Paris Hilton when Paris Hilton went to jail and came and said, well, I'm going to be a good person and help those that are starving. Like, they're playing the roles and they love that they're playing the roles. But at the end of the day, I felt, why am I watching this film if everything I needed to know I could have just read in that Variety article? I look at it and say, okay, if they're obsessed with celebrity and people like like Paris Hilton who have made a name for themselves for being rich and basically being on TV because they're rich and now the same thing happens to them and since this incident happened back in 2010 we have what rich kids Kardashians there's tons of shows where people are being famous just for being rich them committing crime to become famous because they're rich people who commit crime. Like, I don't know. There was something about this film that really irked me. And the fact that it looked fantastic and the performances were so good, that's what drove me mad about this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell. <laughs> and you said a few things there that I kind of want to unpack. And, I, and I'm going to do my best to tie them back, obviously, in with the bling ring. I don't have any beef with the Kardashians. I think Kim Kardashian is one of the savviest businesswomen on the planet. She took what could have been an extremely humiliating life and career ending moment for her and spun it into gold. And that may speak more to how much I admire both Kanye and Kim, but on its own terms, she did a lot for herself, which we can obviously call that selfish, everything like that. But considering how easily we are willing to shame women, that's central to the tension of the bling ring. You had mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation here, how you thought that the most interesting yep parts occurred in the last 20 minutes, right? But then you also expressed annoyance that all the news stories were about Nikki and not Rachel. You're absolutely correct there. The, the news stories were about Nikki. The movie isn't about Nikki. It's about Rebecca and Mark. One of the things that's really interesting about Nikki as a character in this movie is how much she's a sincere reflection of her mother, who we do get a lot of and is wonderfully played by Leslie Mann. But it's the quiet moments between Rebecca and Mark that build up the movie and end up fueling the capers and all that to laser in on that relationship. I don't think anymore 
more that the best sequence is that wordless, distant shot of them breaking in and working through the home. One of the more interesting ones is at the very beginning when it is just Rebecca and Mark and how they kind of entice this out of each other. They're attracted to each other, not in a sexual sense, but in a companionship sense. I really resonated with that the second time around because Mark is himself. He loves heels. He loves giving fashion advice. And I loved those scenes at the beginning, especially where he was very gently correcting Rebecca on who is wearing what, what kind of shoes that they were wearing. In terms of bringing the stuff out of each other, that first break in when Rebecca and they don't even break in they just walk in I don't even remember what that'd be called legally but Rebecca is anticipating the role she's wearing almost a pantsuit jacket nice pants she looks like a realtor she looks like she is a visitor to the environment that she breaks into with Mark because she belongs there as a visitor she belongs there as a third party as they start bringing in more people in they're visiting less as third parties that belong and more as the people that should belong. They start dancing on the poles and it's that transition between when it's just Rebecca and Mark versus when they start bringing in everyone else that I start to wonder which one is more honest. To me, the more honest is when Nikki gets involved. I don't think that any line that Emma Watson reads in this movie is anything less than sincere. She's saying what's on her mind. If someone's ass looks great, their ass looks great. If they want to really talk to their mom, they really want to talk to their mom. Versus Rebecca and Mark who really do engage in a kind of deception about this. Rebecca with her more business-based dress at the beginning and Mark, his sexuality doesn't matter but it's clear that his love of fashion is something he can see from other men that he goes to school with. It was refreshing for me looking at it a second time to see this being presented so nakedly in the second half, I should say, versus the first half where there's a pretense of morality that we should look like we belong here as third parties versus we should look like we belong here because this is our culture. I hesitate trying to bring any kind of moral message or annoyance here because we had the case here in the States of a drunk teen killing people. And then the judge said, you can't serve time in jail. This is affluenza. And I don't necessarily think Sofia Coppola had a responsibility to present that as negative. She presented a case how these people are hermetically sealed, how they can think that they are owed all of these things, how that snowballed from there. A film doesn't have to be the moral voice of society, and I'm fine with that. But the reason why I said the last 20 minutes is the most interesting is because for the first hour and 20 or hour and a half, it's pretty much more of the same. They go in, they rob, they party. They go in, they rob, they party. And it's funny that you talk about Rebecca and Mark being the most interesting relationship or or the most interesting characters of that group. Their relationship at the beginning is fantastic. But what also annoyed me about that was we see that 
that Mark is vain, not just in terms of his love of fashion. But he loves to brag, go on Facebook and quickly publish where they've been, what they took, all that good stuff. But then he's the first once they go into the house to be panicking. All right, we got to go. We got to go. But with Rebecca, and this is why I was so intrigued by her. She from day one, when, talk, when she talks about let's go check cars, almost as it's an everyday thing. When she asks him about his friend, oh, where does he live? Oh, he's away. Let's go and visit his house. She's constantly thinking, grab stuff, grab stuff, take it to a, a certain level. But for the most part, what we actually get from her in terms of dialogue and thought process is, oh, don't worry, it's fine. We got to go. No, no, it's fine. That's all she pretty much says for most of it. When the cops show up at her door towards the end, she is cool. She's like, all right, I'm going to lie. While the rest of them are all, I don't know, I'm the innocent victim. She is coolly calculated. And then when she realizes, all right, you busted me, how can we work so that I get out of this? Because she's, I think, more than just obsessed with Lindsay Lohan. And that's why I found her so fascinating. Nikki... I mean, I guess you could say, yes, she's a product of her environment, but I think the fact that she has the new age mom compared to everyone else whose parents seem to be well structured in terms of their business dealings, their professionalism, yet we don't get any footage of them with their kids until their kids get in trouble. Whereas we get tons of time with Nikki and her mom doing all this, the secrets and visualizing what it's like to be Angelina Jolie. And that's the type of stuff that irked me. If you're going to spend so much time focusing on them robbing and how they're robbing when you could have shown me that in two specific scenes. The aftermath of what happened to them, I thought was even more fascinating. The fact that they did all of this and then they essentially achieved what they wanted through the court case. And I don't know, I think just maybe because she structures it so much towards the, the build up to these interviews and the interviews is essentially Mark and Nikki with the Vanity Fair reporter that, I don't know, the film left me wanting towards the end. I was just like, oh, well, you've raised some very interesting points and some questions about why this generation is so celebrity obsessed and why they feel so entitled in the last 20 minutes. Most of the film is, hey, this is what they do. There's no consequences. You get in a car crash, don't worry about it. Next day, you're going to be in school and you just get community service. Delve into that type of stuff a little more. Don't just kind of hint at it. See, I don't think there's much more to delve at. This generation isn't more celebrity obsessed than anyone else. Busts of Churchill and busts of Tolstoy and George Washington and Aristotle and anyone really they've existed for literally thousands of years to get more specifically to your point so we aren't just spinning ancient rome into this just because with rebecca it's really important to note when things go awry she is absolutely correct be calm mark this doesn't matter it wasn't until rebecca is gone and visiting her family that things go wrong her mediating influence on nikki makes it so that nikki and everyone else starts bragging about whose homes that they've been in and mark is shrugging his shoulders and, and that's what makes it an interesting parallel to what we see in better luck tomorrow which was the first film that we talked about here rebecca is the only minority in any sense in this group she's also the one smart enough to realize we already look like we belong here either as a third party or a first party anything like that and that's why i like that you picked up and talked about how calculated and how calm that she is when the police show up at her door because 
Nikki hasn't had to do anything like that. She hasn't had to triangulate her position and work with what she's got. She has exactly what she has. And that's also why I don't have a problem with the Angelina Jolie scene. They're so focused on her look, the kids at least, her looks and her husband, that to me as an audience member, I was thinking about Angelina Jolie's philanthropy, her charity work, the adoptions, like like what she's done to work with people outside of her circle. And with Rebecca, it just seemed to encapsulate a different kind of inclusiveness with this social structure. Because with Better Luck Tomorrow, we also saw affluent Asian Americans doing their thing. So Rebecca, if we take her in that sense, in a Better Luck Tomorrow sense, she seems like a mastermind. She seems like a Han, able to be detached from all this. Her dress throughout the movie is really indicative of that. She's able to adapt herself to the environment to make herself almost invisible to other idiot affluent white folks Coppola had a very interesting opportunity, as we talked about in Better Luck Tomorrow, take a character, especially the ringleader who's Asian-American, and delve into that, show it in a, a different light. But at the end of the day, we went back to, oh yeah, she was the ringleader. You see her mother in one scene, and then the rest of it is, but look at all these other kids, and it's more of the same. And when I was talking about how it doesn't say much more about our society than, oh, these rich kids are so celebrity, which, as I said, we could get from watching any reality TV show. Like I, again, similar to you, I have nothing against Kim Kardashian and those making. It's the fact that society has evolved to this point and was still evolving when this film was being made. She could have offered a lot of really good nuggets about obsession, about the direction our culture is going. I would argue, to counter your point, that we are more obsessed with fame today than we were way back when. Yes, there's always been a history of celebrity worship. Elvis Beatles go as far back as you want. But with technology the way it is, the fact that anyone can become famous by having enough followers on YouTube, enough Twitter followers, and you're considered a celebrity, there was so much she could have unpacked. But at the end of the day, all we got from this film is, oh, that's just the way how these things are, these kids nowadays. And that really irked me. And one minor quibble, and this is not a Coppola thing, this is just cinema in general. I'm kind of getting tired of the trope of suburban white kids or suburban affluent white kids listening to hip-hop music to show how badass they are, how tough they are. Kids from various backgrounds listen to hip-hop music nowadays. So, so the fact that we keep perpetuating this stereotype in cinema that they're being quote-unquote thugs or they think they're thugs because they listen to this music, I can't tell you the amount of scenes in films that like teen comedy or what have you. If I were to bring it back to... Spring Breakers, if I'm this is the only time I'm gonna compare this to Spring Breakers, to show the sensitivity of them. James Franco plays Britney Spears, pop music. To show deep down he's just a normal person and that's what is considered to him normal thing. But when he has to get in his mode, that's when the hip hop music comes in because that's what it's being tough. As a person who's listened to hip hop pretty much all his life, I just get tired of this trope. It's one of those cinema tropes that I just slap my head every time I see it, you know? Like it's a cinema trope that just irks me and with this film it, it became even more prominent because there was so many other things that was starting to annoy me. With your larger point, I completely agree with you. To be honest, I think that Hillary Clinton, to get political for a sec, missed a gigantic opportunity when the Chicago protests of Donald Trump's rally were rebuffed by the protesters non-violently when they got into the arena they started jumping around singing Kendrick Lamar's All Right we really could have started embracing our diversity but instead that didn't happen so (laughs) not to get too depressed on that Mark but 
I took a different approach with the white kids singing the rap songs because they were getting things wrong. They didn't actually know the songs in terms of condescending to hip hop and in terms of condescending to black humans, period. The stuff in The Wedding Singer, where the grandma starts singing Rapper's Delight for, yeah, that's a very what is it, like scene. two bars? Yeah, I hate that scene. I see that as dumb appropriation. With the scenes in the bling ring, especially when they're singing All of the Light, something as simple and straightforward as All of the Lights, they completely get wrong. They're muttering at points. And all the lights doesn't have a complex structure. All the scenes of the rap in the bling ring, when they are singing it or mouthing along to it, they're doing so really badly. It makes the appropriation clearer in a critical sense because they can't do it effectively, like with the grandma and with rappers, the light and the wedding singer. And that's one of the parts where that Sofia Coppola self-critical rich bitch thing does shine through. They have this image of themselves, but we see directly on camera they can't replicate that image. If they're going to try and act tough, they can't even act tough right as we've come to expect from movies then when they're acting in a sense that they want to try and emulate their celebrity role models the best that they can come up with is Mm -hmm. asking what those role models think of them they can't emulate to the point where they are the new role model aside from mark and nikki as you rightly mentioned sophia doesn't step in to say you need to sing this better or you need to act better or anything like that that it's just a document of that time, of those people, and it might serve as a better documentary than if we get a documentary. And actually, now that I think about it, I guess the closest parallel we could have documentary-wise with the bling ring would be the Queen of Versailles. One of the things I found troubling with the Queen of Versailles was how it didn't engage in the effect that they were having on lower people. And that had even less of an excuse because it was a documentary. Like, in the long run, I, I think that with the bling ring, it's such a careful portrayal of people acting badly when they try and appropriate other cultures and then acting appropriately when they stick with themselves that it's so neutral it's easy to form your own moral viewpoint because yeah, see, i love your it is what it is and that's what you think about because that is you know a, a perfect example of how you can take that shallowness that obsession with fame and still give it depth because watching the queen of versailles one of the interesting things about it is not just this monstrous project that they're doing or how oblivious they are to their help but it's seeing how their marriage is almost crumbling and if i remember correctly he treats the wife like garbage for most of it they also have this kind of extended makeshift family that they're trying to deal with so you've got them trying to live the lifestyle their marriage isn't quite what it should be and then you also have the effects of the economy what happens when those who want to be the upper echelon can no longer afford to be the upper echelon but still want to be like you know there was a lot more depth to that film than Oh, these rich kids nowadays, you know, like that's pretty much what I got from watching this film as visually exciting as it is. 
and as fun as parts of it is at the end of the day i mean i wish that we had got maybe half of how they broke in because yes we know who they broke in you could have had a couple of lines that said these are the other celebrities they hit and then show me the aftermath show me mark you know delve into him having the interview more but courtney we get those lines <laughs> that's how we know that Orlando yeah, Bloom but after, sorry, uh, okay. Let me Wilson let me rephrase that because yes, you, you get those <laughs> lines, but we've seen them in Paris Hilton's house like three or four <laughs> times. We see them going into Adriana Partridge's house. We didn't need all the scenes of them hanging out in the celebs' house and like. There's I don't know outside of maybe one or two of the scenes. There's nothing really that unique about their heist. There's an interesting film to be told. But it's not quite this film. You know, maybe we need to watch a Lifetime movie instead. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Or, or maybe not instead, but in addition to, just to see how they compare. What you'd said there with how the break-ins aren't terribly unique. How many break-in movies can you think of where they go in and they steal everything that they want and then they get out cleanly again and case, again and again? Um, there's not. Well, there's not. I can't think of that many because at the same time, you they wouldn't, there wouldn't be a film where they did it cleanly again and again and again because it would be repetitive. So you would show them doing it cleanly once, you know, maybe twice, and then they're done. But here's the... They go, they go in cleanly, they hang out, they steal something. We see them stealing from people who aren't even famous, go in, hang out, steal something. Like, it's repetitive. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's no... The reason why you wouldn't see a film where they go in cleanly again and again and again is because it's it's not exciting. It's not that interesting. You get the message early on with the first couple of houses. So, my question, why should we be interested in this story outside of it is what it is? It's one of my favorite songs, and while I try not to cop from Ebert too much, it was one of his favorite songs as well is Peggy Lee's Is That All There Is? And to me, the bling ring is a great accompaniment to that. Thinking of our shorts, also that we talked about at the beginning, at a certain point, that's all there is. There is just this aimless existence in a giant mansion, or there is this existence where you go to these parties in the middle of southern fields and try not to think about your own death. And there is this, the bling ring, where they were able to get away with lots of thefts just by going in there and doing their thing. Whatever you want to criticize about the bling ring is just a cultural criticism, period. It has, yeah, this I don't is know, one man, we'll have to agree to it just works for me. Lively discussion, as usual, I will include a link to our email and our new Twitter site. So for Changing Reels, I'm Courtney Small. And I'm Andrew Hathaway. Thank you for listening. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network. Thank you.